0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the European Union's embargo on Russian oil, uh, the G7 price cap and other economic issues. Also going to be uh, talking about some uh, shakeups in the world of public housing here in D.C. and what that also means for the rest of the country. Also going to be discussing a 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine against a backdrop of a resurgent progressive left in Latin America and the Caribbean. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: In his acceptance speech after being declared the projected winner of the Georgia runoff election last night, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock said to his supporters, quote, I often say that a vote is a kind of prayer for the world we desire for ourselves and for our children. Warnock continued You have put in the hard work and here we are standing together. Well, I'm not entirely sure what kind of world our children will benefit from having Warnock in the Senate for another term. But the crisis of having a world shaped by Herschel Walker in the Senate, giving the GOP control of it, well, that has been averted. That's pretty much the totality of what Warnock's win last night means, I guess. And that isn't saying a lot about what voters will get from Warnock as they send him back to Washington. And this is the contradiction we always raise on this show about the shortcomings of expecting any real change from electoral politics with this system as it exists. Sure, we can vote for representatives of the party that is less evil than the other party. And sometimes, in this case, demonstrably so. I think that's true. But at the end of the day, you're still getting some kind of evil. And why would you want to keep voting to get a form of evil? This is what I mean. For his votes on good legislation like the Women's Health Protection Act, the Postal Service Reform Act, and his co-sponsoring a bill to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, which was ultimately voted down in the Senate, by the way. Raphael Warnock has also voted to provide additional $10.3 million to the U.S. Marshal Service and $9.1 million to the Supreme Court for additional security for the justices and their staffs. He's voted for every resolution or appropriation to Ukraine that has been presented which is now over $7 billion and projects to be closer to $100 billion before the year is out. And he's completely backtracked on his already wishy-washy two-state supporting stance on the oppression of the Palestinian people by the apartheid government of Israel, accepting endorsements and endorsement money from Israel lobbying groups in exchange for his turning a blind eye to Palestinian suffering and for turning his back on his own previous sermons on the crimes Israel has committed in Gaza. Seriously, is this the best we can do? I think the answer is that in a capitalist system in which ensuring human rights for all is not profitable, the answer is yes, this is the best we can do. And while it certainly is better, I guess, than the immediate catastrophe of having the GOP control the Senate with Heming and Haw and Herschel Walker as their standard bearer, a Warnock win within a Democratic Party that is entirely captured by corporate interests and is enthusiastic in its advance of U.S. imperialism to subjugate the rest of the world to U.S. interests, that isn't good for advancing human rights at all. (music) And since we're talking about the tangible benefits of political representation, I don't think any of us are receiving the kind of benefits from U.S. policies like Volodymyr Zelensky is, With that $70 billion in U.S. funds that U.S. politicians keep approving, making it possible for Ukraine to now carry out drone strikes inside of Russia. That's right. Ukraine has drone attacked two Russian military bases, an airport and an industrial facility within the borders of Russia within the past few days. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken speaking at a news conference in Washington said the United States has, quote, neither encouraged nor enabled the Ukrainians to strike inside Russia. But he said the U.S. is determined, along with many other countries that back Kiev, to make sure that the Ukrainians have, quote, the equipment that they need to defend themselves, to defend their territory, to defend their freedom, end quote. Well, the U.S. has absolutely both encouraged and enabled Ukraine to do exactly this by declaring that the U.S. will do whatever it takes to use Ukraine to weaken Russia and by continuing to allocate millions and billions of dollars in weapons, social and government support, and other aid to Ukraine while they do it. In fact, how about the fact that the Biden administration will put $53 million toward rebuilding Ukraine's battered electrical grid, which has been battered by Russian attacks, which were, in my opinion, in response to Ukraine's attempted attacks on nuclear power plants and dams that could have destroyed whole towns and caused massive civilian casualties that Ukraine was trying to pin on Russia But the U.S. assistance plan is a sign of the concern about the growing energy crisis in Ukraine, where millions have been deprived of heat and electricity and running water as winter sets in and all the poor Ukrainians. Well, in North Carolina, that's in the United States, by the way, residents are still without power three days after a shooting that damaged two power substations. That's right. Someone intentionally shot up a power substation in a North Carolina county in what has been deemed a targeted attack. Officials warn that this signals a larger threat to the nationwide infrastructure. And the Department of Homeland Security has even warned that domestic terrorists have been developing credible, specific plans to attack electricity infrastructure since at least 2020. Or places like East Texas that live with regular boil water notices that nobody really pays attention to. They just suffer through while a recent boil water notice went national uh, when it occurred in Houston. And how long has it taken to get a federal judge's approval to authorize the appointment of a third party manager to oversee reforms to Jackson, Mississippi's water system? Do I need to mention Flint? Goodness gracious. Ukraine can solve its own infrastructure problems by negotiating an end to their use as a proxy by the U.S. against Russia. Because the politicians we vote for sure could allocate that money that goes to rebuild Ukraine's energy infrastructure to all of the infrastructure in this country and a whole lot more. Follow Luke Nation on Patreon.com slash for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points, and you I listen to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Dr. Jack Rasmus, an economist, radio show host, and author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism. Dr. Rasmus, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Absolutely. And Dr. Rasmus, this week saw the rollout of different uh, uh, economic uh, uh, policies emanating both from the United States and the European Union uh, towards Russia, uh, which include both uh, an embargo on Russian oil from the European Union and uh, a price cap initiative that was led by the U.S. in an effort to try to put a further squeeze on the Russian economy. And I was hoping you could help us understand and just what these uh, uh, measures are uh, meant to do, and what do you see as the impacts, uh, if any?
3: Yeah, well, the embargo uh, is really embargo on the ship-based uh, transport of oil, okay? So you still have some of the pipelines open. Uh, and uh, the price cap is really an attempt to enforce what might my- might be called secondary sanctions, in other words, trying to get other countries not to buy Russian oil. And the whole idea here with uh, the G7, NATO, U.S., EU is um, to prevent Russia from uh, gaining uh, revenue that uh, you know supposedly it will use to fund and finance its war. Well, sanctions to date have had uh, little to no effect including oil sanctions, uh, Russia is simply selling more oil uh, to India and other places around the world and is even discounting its oil. You know, the global price of oil is, uh, depending uh, whether it's uh, Brent, North Sea, or West Texas, is you know, around $80, $85 a barrel. Uh, and Russia is discounting it to about $60 a barrel. Well, this price cap uh, by the Europeans set uh, Sets the price at $60 a barrel. So uh, it's kind of hard to envision uh, how that's going to discourage other countries from uh, not buying Russian oil when uh, Russia's price of the oil is at or below the price cap anyway. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is just the first step, probably, uh, by the U.S. and NATO. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's kind of absurd because what it means is that NATO and the U.S. think that they can, G7, think that they can set the global price of oil. Uh, well, for decades, the Saudis could not set the price of oil very, very efficiently by controlling supply. So w- what makes the Europeans and the U.S. think they can do it by uh, manipulating demand? Um, the The key to the... The, the price cap is is really uh, controlling of the insuring of the shipment of oil. You see, most of the ship insurers are European in the world, and uh, they won't uh, provide insurance to any of the tankers uh, if they're going to a country that's buying uh, Russian oil in violation. Uh, of the price cap. Well, there's lots of ways to get around that. You know, you just ship the oil to another country, China or something, and they reship it to the the country. Um, there's no way of uh, really identifying who's violating uh, the, you know, the price cap. Uh, if particularly if uh, it's not bought in in dollars, but in some other currency. You see, most of the world oil is a bought and sold only in dollars. That's one of the ways that the U.S. empire controls the global economy. Uh, but there's a growing trend of not uh, buying oil uh, with dollars. So if that happens, there's no way the international uh, payment system, the SWIFT system, can really know who's violating uh, you know, the price caps. Uh, it, it's kind of just a desperation act, I think, on the part of the G7 to look like they're doing something. Uh, But you got to understand the bigger picture here, um, whether it's this price cap sanction or other sanctions on oil or Russian commodities, uh, very critical uh, uh, agricultural and metal commodities, regardless of of what it is. It's all about the U.S. trying to drive Russia out of Europe, the European economy, uh, which they've been doing and which uh, the U.S. uh, oil companies and U.S. companies are stepping into the vacuum. And, by the way, charging the Europeans uh, much higher prices for their oil or their natural gas, whatever. I just just read that yesterday, uh, for next year, the U.K. is uh, going to double its importation of U.S. oil. And the U.S. oil is uh, sold to them above the price cap, by the way, right? (laughs) Uh, That's really probably what it's about here, to make sure that uh, the U.S. sells uh, uh, Europe oil above uh, what it says other people can't buy Russian oil. Uh, And uh, natural gas, the same thing. I understand the U.S. is shipping natural gas to Europe. On LNG uh, ships, and it's like three, four times the price they used to get from uh, the Russian pipeline gas pipeline. So uh, the U.S. oil companies are making a, a you know a big killing here economically, charging the Europeans a lot more. Europeans are getting a little upset about that, um, uh, and at the same time, it keeps supplies low here in the U.S., so it keeps the price up in the U.S. Uh, And uh, they make uh, money on both ends, the oil companies, you see. Uh, What's the impact long term? Well, it's kind of probably not too much on the global oil price because the price of oil, uh, I'm talking about crude here, uh, not uh, refined oil, but crude is really determined by supply and demand. And uh, the demand is slowing down in the world because uh, the world is slipping into a global recession, so the demand for oil is is, is slowing down. Um, at the same time, though, you've got other countries like uh, the Saudis who are cutting production to try to keep the price up. And then you got the possibility that maybe China is uh, going to reopen after COVID. That will increase the demand and the price of oil. Some talk about uh, you know the price of oil going from eighty dollars a barrel to a hundred. Uh, In other words, there are global supply and demand forces that are far more influential on the price of oil. I don't see um, the price cap uh, changing the global price of oil that much.
1: Yeah, I do wonder how people in the UK are are responding to uh, what is turning out for them to be uh, to translate to higher prices to heat their homes in the winter. I mean, I think one example of people not taking this is that nurses and ambulance drivers in the UK uh, had voted to go on strike over uh, a pay demand a re- demand to raise their wages because energy prices have increased but a UK minister s- has said uh, that the nurses must drop their pay demands to send a clear message to Putin that uh, they're not going to be divided in this way this is happening in the UK but I I don't Think that people, the regular folks in the UK, are really buying this? You know, uh, Putin's energy prices <laughs> um, uh, campaign that the UK and other European nations. Uh, are carrying out because people are cold and they realize that, you know, they're not uh, paying more for energy because of anything Putin has done. This is a decision that uh, NATO and the U.S. and its partners have uh, made that's caused people to, Uh, not be uh, be able to afford energy now. So, I mean, how do you think this policy will play out among the regular folks who at the end of the line and at the end of the day have to pay for the energy that folks are haggling over?
3: over? Well, it's not not playing out very well. You know, more and more sectors of uh, uh, the labor force is – you know trying to protect itself um, you know inflation is double digit uh, will double digit in the UK and in uh, Europe and of course uh, both of those countries are areas regions are uh, in recession now as well so you got double digit inflation and you got recession occurring and it's going to get worse both of them here uh, so uh, you know the working class is responding here and there uh, trying, especially if they have a union, if they don't have a union, they're you know, tough luck uh, and uh, they're trying to offset it. Well, you know, uh, the, the leading po- political parties there uh, uh, don't want to allow wage increases because that just uh, adds to the inflation. You know, it didn't start with wages. Wages are just trying to catch up, and they never catch up totally with the inflation. But we can we can see that, uh, you know, in the railroad workers uh, in, in the U.K. and in, in the U.S. and other places uh, responding uh, strikes in some cases in order to try to raise, uh, compensate their uh, uh, spending income. So it's going to get much worse in the U.K. U.K. is a real basket case right now. Uh, but they've got uh, the Conservative Party and and their central bank, Bank of England, uh, really intent on um, making the victims of the inflation and the recession pay for it. Uh, that's what austerity is all about. You know there's no no talk about uh, uh, corporations and businesses giving up some of their profits. It's just uh, talk about uh, the workers can't uh, you know push for for wages to protect their incomes. Uh, there's going to be more of that. And uh, conservative parties' uh, days are numbered. Uh, but, uh, you know, with the current leadership of the Labor Party, with this guy Keir Starmer, who is was uh, a Johnny-come-lately, uh, really a Tory in disguise, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's not going to be much different under, quote, a Labor Party, if you can call that a Labor Party anymore. Uh, it was purged, of course, uh, several years ago. They got rid of the... Uh, the labor guy there, Corbin, and they put this, uh, Johnny come lately. He only ran for, uh, you know, a, a seat, I think 2015 here, they picked him and pushed him. They meaning, uh, you know, the real, the real powers, political powers behind the scene in, in the UK, not unlike what happened here, uh, with, uh, with Biden, you know, very similar. you got, uh, the social Democrat of, uh, of uh, Sanders, uh, who was uh, manipulated, and you know, at the right time they push their boy Biden, and uh, they make sure that uh, you know no even sympathetic candidates to the working class actually get in a position where they can uh, introduce policies that uh, you know are more favorable to the working class. And same thing in England. Same thing here in the U.S. Uh, but the people, bottom line, you know, they're going to continue to resist as things get. Uh, Things get worse, but the problem is um, there's really no effective political party to represent them, Uh, and that's the case here in the U.S. as well.
0: It definitely is. And speaking of there being no uh, real representation of the workers here in the states, Dr. Rasmus, I'm also curious your thoughts about um, the ongoing issue of uh, uh, the striking railroad workers and what you know we see here on the show as attempts from the Biden administration to basically try to scuttle uh, these workers' attempts at getting things like a proper amount of sick leave and things like that. And so I'm just wondering from the standpoint of an economist, sort of how you're uh, 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 analyzing that whole piece.
3: Yeah, well I just uh wrote a piece on on that that uh you know your listeners can uh, can read on my blog jackrasmus.com uh called uh, railroad workers uh, under the thumb. Uh you, you got to realize that uh railroads are a very uh, strategic uh, industry. And the workers have a lot of potential power there. They can bring the economy to a halt and get whatever they want in negotiations if they're allowed to strike. But they're not allowed to strike, you see. Since 1926, uh, there's this law called the Railway Labor Act that uh, requires uh, a a 90-day – halt in any attempt to, attempt to strike uh, just like the taft hartley act does that for uh, other industries and, and unions uh you can't strike during that 90 days well that was uh, activated in august or september rather on uh, the 90 day cooling off period as they call it and um Once that was activated, well, there was no incentive for railroad corporations, who, by the way, are making tremendous profits, uh, no incentive for them to negotiate any paid sick leave or anything else. So using that loss kind of freezes the bargaining in place. And then when it was uh, just about to expire— well, then uh, Congress, uh, led by the Democrats, Pelosi and Biden, uh, say, OK, 90 days are up. But if you strike, we're going to slap anti-union le- anti-strike legislation on you. Uh, and, you know, that probably means we can take over your unions if we want to. Uh, and they threatened to do that. And they did do that. Well, that even froze um, bargaining up even more. So when the government comes down using these laws, they're really coming down uh, uh, 100 percent on the side of uh, the companies, which, of course, they're doing. Uh, And you got to remember that uh, this latest event where they passed the anti-union law, uh, anti-strike law, uh, is the 19th time that Congress has intervened, threatening to do this to the railroad workers. Railroad workers don't have any right to strike. It's only on paper. Uh, The government will step in every time, as Biden did. You know, Biden says, oh, well, you know, he's the, uh, the friend of labor. Well, that's a lot of phony talk. When the push comes to shove, we see where they really are. Uh, and uh, the railroad workers, uh, you know, have uh, been paying the price. They don't, they don't have any sick leave, you see. Uh, they, they have some personal leave days. But the problem in the railroads is that uh, management won't let them take it. They won't let them take personal leave days because there's not enough workers. They've lost 30 percent of their, their labor force, the workforce and the railroads over COVID here. They can't get them back. So they're forcing these workers to work, 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 uh, and they can't take time off. And if they do, they get disciplined. So it's not just the number of sick leave days that they asked for, which was 15, and then uh, the legislation was supposed to give them seven. But you see, Congress played this uh, legislative game. Uh, they broke out the bill. Uh, part of it, one bill was anti-strike, and the other bill was, well, we'll give you seven days. That passed the House. But they knew, Democrats knew it would never get by the Senate because you need 260 votes. They knew that. So uh, they voted up the uh, anti-strike, uh, but they uh, voted down the 7 days sick leave in Congress. Well, that's the same tactic they pulled last year when they shot down their own Build Back Better bill. Uh, so, you know— These are just legislative games that the Democrats play along with the Republicans. When push comes to shove, Uh, you know, it's a very class-based government. And, uh, you know, they talk the talk, but don't walk the walk when it comes to labor and the unions. Uh, And we've seen this very clearly. And, And they're not able to strike. You know, if you can't strike, you can't defend yourself. You can't raise their wages or anything. They could get everything they wanted if they were able to walk out. And, uh, and the companies can really afford it. They've got record profits, the railroad companies, going on, you know, running the operations with only 70% of the normal workforce and, and all the demand for their goods. Uh, so uh, they certainly could afford it. They just don't want to give up the right to deny people the ability to take time off when they're sick or ill. Uh, they want to really run it. Management's rights, they call it. Uh, and, uh, you know, Congress came down on their
1: on their side. Yeah. You know, and Dr. Rasmus, what do you make of uh, some of the rail were uh, rail workers uh, statement that because of this action, the Biden administration has taken against them, a lot of rail workers will just walk off the job.
3: I don't think that's going to happen. You may have a little bit of that uh, occurring um, here and there, uh, but um, I, I don't see a big uh, wildcat across the whole industry, wildcat strike going on. Uh, you know, look, this game has been played. I've seen it. I was in the negotiating seat on the labor side for 15 years in an earlier life. I know how this game is played, and way it's played is that uh, the railroad leadership, uh, we'll get a lot of pressure from the other railroad uh, unions that settled, from the AFL-CIO, who will be telling them, uh, hey, you know, if you, uh, if you strike nonetheless against this law in Congress, uh, uh, Congress will pass even tougher legislation on all of us. And uh, besides, if you strike, uh, the government can take over your unions because it's uh, illegal, put you in, quote, receivership uh whatever else, uh, and uh, fine you and uh, put your leaders in jail. And uh, they will balk. The leaders will balk, and they will uh, tell their their members, uh, look, uh, uh, this is all we can get. Uh, uh, let's vote it up and come back again next time five years from now. And uh, the wage uh, increases they got, by the way, is less than inflation over the five years. So they're going to lose ground. And, uh, you know, the workers will be doing... They'll discourage the workers, and uh, you won't get a turnout, but you get enough of a turnout for another vote, and, uh, you know, they'll go back. Uh, it's tremendous pressure, you know, uh, in this kind of situation under leadership. And if people strike, they'll get fired, you know, in this case. Uh, it, you know, the government and the rest of uh, the top-level of the labor movement will come down on the side of the companies and uh, eventually squash uh, any walkout, I think.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Rasmus, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio watch Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us And today we're talking about developments inside the world of housing in D.C. and the ripple effects that that has for the country. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Will Merrifield, director of the Center for Social Housing and Public Investment. Will, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Hey, thanks for having me, Sean.
0: appreciate it. Absolutely. And, Will, uh, the D.C. Council has delayed a vote on a bill that would uh, actually dissolve the D.C. Housing Authority Board. And uh, the uh, dissolving of uh, this board is uh, something that's uh, coming at the behest of D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser following a scathing uh, report from HUD about D.C.H.A. that was published Recently, And I want to get into the details of that report uh, a little later. But to begin, Will, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what's uh, uh, happening here with this uh, Housing Authority Board and why you think it's unfolding at this moment.
4: Yeah, well, it's unfolding at this moment because of the HUD report that recently came out. Um, The HUD report, like you said, was scathing, talked about mismanagement within the Housing Authority, the terrible conditions that Housing Authority residents have been living in for years now, and as, you know, happens in politics, even though the D.C. Council and the mayor, the mayor, uh, they, they've been well aware of the situation for decades. Um, this report came out, it, um, you know, it hit the streets, and now there is this flurry of action to get things done. W- what I would suggest is that the mayor is actually using this as an opportunity to, uh, in essence. Um, you know, get a control board uh, for DTHA that she completely controls and that will do what she wants to do with public housing in Washington, D.C., which, in my opinion, is sell it off, privatize it to private developers, um, get uh, the public housing in D.C. off D.C.'s books and um, basically demolish it and, and privatize the whole network. So, you know, I think that this is a ruse uh, under the guise of we are being proactive and we're going to get something done. And what's really happening is, um, you know, the execution of a long term plan that has been botched uh, since Mayor Bowser, you know, took took office um, to sell off and privatize that land. And the reason that she hasn't been able to do this, the reason that that it has been botched, her privatization schemes, is because of the DCHA board, which there's a couple members that she does not control, and they've been thorns in the side of this privatization scheme. So what the mayor wants to do with this legislation is remove those people from the DCHA board.
1: Yeah, and that's a very critical point. The people uh, on the DCHA board that the mayor does not control because she actually appoints or the mayor's office uh, just happens to be Muriel Bowser. This go around uh, appoints seven of the 13 members of the DCHA board and selects the chair and the report. Uh, about the, the problems with DCHA actually recommend that the housing authority director, who is Brenda Donald, uh, that the board brought on last year without a national search, that that person receive training in critical housing authority functions because the report uh, points out that Donald has no experience in property development, property management, or managing federal housing programs. But that was not the response to this report that Miriam Bowser had, her response was to in- introduce this emergency, uh, sorry, emergency legislation that would have done what, Will?
4: The emergency legislation would have taken off the members uh, from the board that have precluded um, this mayor from executing a privatization scheme for public housing. So it, it would. It would it would allow her to have greater control of the board. It, her initial legislation removed resident participation from the board and removed the person from the board that the housing advocates in Washington D.C. elect to be on the board, and the person that labor um, elects to be on the board. So it removes the opponents of the mayor from the board and it strengthens her control over the board. So it allows her to have um, her pick of whoever she wants to be on this board.
0: Yeah, and well, I wanted to get deeper into uh, the HUD report that we've been discussing here uh, uh, as well. I mean, what was uh, contained uh, in there uh, that made the report so damning and that would, you know, prompt this kind of drastic response from the city?
4: The HUD report painted the picture of just absolutely – you know, general mismanagement of the Housing Authority and a complete failure of the Housing Authority to provide um, habitable housing for the residents in Washington D.C. There was uh, a fourth of the units in the uh, the public housing um, units are vacant uh, because they're in such disrepair, and then the units that are you know occupied by people are in horrid disrepair now. Um, Like Jackie alluded to earlier, this problem um, predates Muriel Bowser as the mayor of Washington, D.C. Both the federal government and the local government have completely disinvested in public housing for decades and allowed public housing to fall down around its residents. When Muriel Bowser, you know, the mayor came on board, she tried— to execute, has been trying to execute, and I would I would point readers to the District Dig, which is a local reporting outlet that has done great reporting on this. Through members, you know, through her control of the DCHA board, she's tried to execute basically a privatization scheme of all of public housing in Washington, D.C., and it's been botched. It, they, they haven't been able to pull it off. So this, this attempt... Um, by by the this emergency legislation is an attempt to allow her to gain greater control of the board in order to execute that privatization scheme, um, and they're using the scathing hub report as cover to do so. Um, it's it's um, it's about as cynical a ploy as you could possibly you know imagine uh, from the mayor instead of trying to address the issues in the report, which are how are you going to make these units livable for the people that need them? People in public housing are overwhelmingly senior citizens on fixed income and children. You know, instead of thinking about how we're going to repair these units, make these units livable, get the vacant units back online, the the reaction has been how do we more control the board uh, so that, in my opinion, you know, they, they, they can sell it off to developers.
0: Yeah, and I'm also wondering, Will, uh, how do you situate the? Uh, uh, condition or situation of public housing in D.C. with uh, what we see uh, across the country. And, you know, as someone who does housing work, you know, here uh, locally, I mean, I've definitely seen, you know, some units that frankly don't look like human beings should live in it. And it's just incredible uh, the disrepair and just slum conditions that uh, uh, people are subject to with no response and no relief coming from those who are in a position to, do so. And uh, but when we talk about the issue of public housing and affordable housing in DC, which is a rapidly uh, a gentrifying uh city with a serious uh uh process of displacement that's been happening for some years now. How do you see that uh, reflected elsewhere in the country because it seems to me that we're seeing similar processes playing playing out in cities of uh, both big and small.
4: Yeah, I mean absolutely. You know, public housing no matter I've been a housing attorney and you know, Ohio, I've been a housing attorney in Washington, DC, and what you've seen in, in all places, and when you study housing, you know, we you look to New Orleans after the flood. There is a push um and in and, and all jurisdictions in the United States, and this push came down from HUD um with the Hope Six projects to privatize public housing. Um the federal government has stopped investing in public housing and has pushed jurisdictions to privatize their public housing stock. And when the federal government has stopped putting money in, this is why the HUD report, although very helpful, is somewhat, you know, hypocritical of HUD to come in and say, hey, you know, these places are in disrepair. It's well, HUD has not given the money, you know, to any jurisdiction to keep their public housing in repair. Now, on top of that, DCHA is Managed horribly and they've compounded errors, um, you know, upon not having enough operating subsidy from the federal government. But to your point, Sean, everywhere um, there is this push for jurisdictions to sell off their public housing to get it off the boards. What is, you know, horrifying in Washington, D.C., is that in the the same instances where public housing is falling down around its residents. You'll go a block down the street in Columbia Heights, and there's million-dollar row homes. So what you see in areas like Washington, D.C. and San Francisco and New York is this huge disconnect between the investment that the city is putting into a certain type of housing for a certain group of people and the Investment that's going into public housing, and like I said, I would argue that that is that is a function of the system. And the idea is to disinvest in this housing, make it untenable for people to be able to live in it, and then use that as an excuse to say, well, we have to inject capital into this um, into these neighborhoods, and we have to inject capital into this housing by privatizing it. And what happens? we 've seen over and over and over through Hope Six through you know choice communities these these quote unquote revitalization of public housing schemes is that once these units are privatized, the amount of affordability is a drastically reduced, and people are displaced from their communities so this is all. Part and parcel you know what what, you, what we're seeing play out in real time is part and parcel of what's going on all over the country and this this act by the mayor to get you know greater control of this board to essentially appoint a control board I think it's her attempt to streamline this process of privatization and remove the opponents of that privatization scheme from the board. And, uh, you know, she's using this HUD report as the
5: opportunity to do so.
1: And and it seems, Will, that no matter how hard she has tried to just steamroll uh, this proposal into the council, uh, she wasn't successful or it seems like she hasn't been successful yet. What caused the delay in this vote?
4: Well, I mean, you know, people on the ground, public housing residents, community organizations um, spoke out you know, against this because people saw it for what it is. Um, you know, the mayor, the mayor probably, I mean, if, if you want to get deep into the politics of it, you know, the removal of people from public housing and, and from the board was so egregious that I think um, it really put the brakes on it. Now there's a council member, Robert White, who offered an amendment to the legislation that um, would, reconstitutes it would allow back onto this control board, basically, representatives from uh, public housing. However, that amendment keeps off um, the representatives from the board that the advocates would pick and labor would pick, who have been working with public housing residents to stop This privatization scheme. So you know, there's a lot of politics that are going on around this specific emergency legislation, and I would argue that um, the amendment to put the residents back on the board but still keep off um, the other advocates who have been pushing back against this privatization scheme is a um, is a is an amendment that actually plays in favor of the mayor and is designed to get this thing rammed through. Um, It was it was it has been stopped for now, but it's going to be reintroduced, I believe, next Tuesday. Um, So, yeah, it it was stopped in its initial push, but they're going to come right back Tuesday and I think try to push it through. So still a lot of work to be done.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Will, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By any means necessary.
0: Welcome back. And today we are marking 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine and what that means against the backdrop of a rising pink tide in Latin America. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Frederick Mills, author of Enrique Dussel's Ethics of Liberation, and introduction and department director of the Council on Hemispheric Affairs and professor of philosophy at Bowie State University. Professor Mills, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me absolutely and uh professor mills uh recently remarked the 200th anniversary of the monroe doctrine a, a policy that really has had uh frankly historic uh, ripple effects uh, throughout this hemisphere and uh, arguably around the world as we see similar maneuvers uh, uh from us imperialism but we're marking this anniversary amidst a kind of resurgent uh uh progressive left uh, uh, election wave, if you will, inside the different governments of Latin America. And we've been uh, uh, marking this here on the show. And I feel like there's a lot to sort of get into in terms of the dynamics, uh, the role of uh, social movements and the popular elements of these different uh, uh, countries. But to begin, could you properly define Just what the Monroe Doctrine is and uh, how you sort of situated giving shifting dynamics in the Latin American region today.
5: Yeah, I mean, the Monroe Doctrine, which will complete its 200th anniversary next December, really was the declaration by the U.S. that all of Latin America and the Caribbean would be in its proverbial backyard, sort of a protectorate. Uh, that it somehow uh, belonged, uh, at least in terms of its direction and its ideology and its economic structures, uh, to the United States. And the resistance to Monroeism uh, was immediate, so this is not a new phenomenon. But what's happened uh, most recently is that uh, the Monroe Doctrine is being placed more clearly in a tradition Uh, that goes back to 1492. Uh, In other words, U.S. exceptionalism has its roots. It's the offspring, uh, not only of the African slave trade and the conquest uh, of Amerindia, but this whole uh, idea that Europe is at the cutting edge of history and somehow has even a divine right to bring civilization uh, to Amerindia. And of course, we know that in reality, Uh, It wasn't bringing civilization, but setting up its primitive accumulation of wealth on the backs and territories of the uh, indigenous peoples.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, the resistance to the Monroe Doctrine was immediate. And I think that's important to kind of dig into because I think we have been having the conversation about decolonizing our thinking, our organizing our spaces and really the way we see the world uh, only recently. But this struggle to uh, decolonize in the pursuit of multipolarity has been going on for decades. So I'm hoping you can explain uh, how that engagement uh, against the Monroe Doctrine in the concepts of decoloniality and multipolarity have played out over the decades.
5: Wow. So, I think uh, it was maybe Chavez more clearly uh, than perhaps other leaders uh, in the hemisphere who saw a link uh, between decolonization, integration, and sovereignty. Uh, And we have to add multipolarity. Uh, So, he argued that only in the advance of a multipolar world can Latin America and the Caribbean uh, pursue its independence and itself uh, become a major player on the world uh, economic, political stage. And uh, in order to make this happen, another ingredient was the civic military alliance that without the backing of the popular sectors, without obedience of constituted power to the constituents that put them there, uh, any left program would not be sustainable. Uh, It would basically begin to take itself as a point of reference. And there the danger comes of the regression to right-wing rule. So uh, I think we could look at the decoloniality more recently as pushback against neoliberalism. And we saw that uh, begin with the Caracazo in Venezuela in 1989. It's also um, a pushback against the whole idea of modernity uh, that uh, started in 1492, the idea of the superiority of, of Europe and its divine right. But it's also a pushback against what we can call postmodernity, the idea that there are no uh, universal principles that can inform a politics of liberation.
0: Yeah, that one's had a serious uh, impact, uh, particularly in terms of our uh, uh, social movements. And uh, you mentioned Hugo Chavez, Professor Mills. And as it turns out, I believe yesterday actually marked uh, uh, 24 years since Chavez was elected the president of Venezuela. And we were able to see that uh, Bolivarian revolution uh, sort of kick off in earnest. And to this day, I would argue that Venezuela is, you know, a standard bearer for uh, uh, the progressive and left government of the region. And uh, there's another aspect of this that I I wanted to get into in terms of um, integration and trade partnerships with uh, other countries, both within uh, the Latin America, Caribbean region and outside of it, even with countries like China. And when we talk about this concept of a multipolarity at a time when uh, U.S. imperialism, at least from our standpoint on the show, is in um, a state of Decline, although we don't think it's going to uh, topple over tomorrow. Um, and I feel like this is evidenced and the U.S.'s is uh, ongoing aggression towards uh, Russia and China uh, uh, specifically. And so, uh, Professor Mills, how do you see the uh, role of uh, some of these uh, different bodies, like uh, CELAC and others, that that we could point to in terms of uh, sort of uh, uh, coming out and really shaking off the shackles of uh, two centuries of the Monroe Doctrine?
5: Wow. So uh, I think it was an important moment, the CELAC uh, summit in 21, when um, AMLO, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, president of Mexico, uh, made a historic uh, speech July 24th, evoking uh, the legacy of Simon Bolivar and declaring basically the Monroe Doctrine uh, as uh, something. That should be in the waste bin of history. He also had some criticism of the OAS, uh, which, uh, in its extreme, uh, its uh, Secretary General having extreme partisanship uh, for the right uh, right wing in Latin America. He had some criticism for the OAS, suggesting that maybe it's time to replace it with more of a focus on CELAC as the appropriate arena for debate and discussion in Latin America. So this was followed uh, uh, just a year later by the Ninth Summit of the Americas uh, hosted by Washington, and it's as if Washington didn't get the message. Um, it was a divisive summit. Uh, they excluded the countries that have been targeted for regime change, uh, and this provoked, uh, throughout Latin America, uh, indignation. And so you saw two alternative summits, which included... Uh, the popular sectors, uh, the Workers Summit in Tijuana, the People's Summit uh, in Los Angeles, and so. Uh, but another important group uh, to mention is the Puebla Group. Uh, they also originally met. They were founded in 2019 as a pushback against the Lima Group, the now defunct Lima Group, which was a coalition of right-wing uh, countries in Latin America that was advancing Washington's uh, regime change agenda. Uh, And so the Pueblo Group recently met, and also uh, very conscious that there's a new dawn and a new opportunity with the recent election of progressive governments, uh, they met and set out an agenda uh, for the Americas. And then just a few days later, uh, November 14th, there was a letter from uh, leaders in South America urging the presidents in South America to reconstitute UNASUR. So we're about to see... Uh, the reconstitution of Unasur, which now has its headquarters in uh, Bolivia. And we just have to mention the sovereign Aviyala movement, because uh, the protagonism of indigenous peoples uh, can no longer be invisible uh, to people in the north, uh, because it was indigenous people that led the resistance to the coup in Bolivia and the recuperation of democracy there. So they met We're bringing together indigenous groups from 16 different countries. And all of these associations converge uh, explicitly on the project of decolonization, integration, uh, but the indigenous groups add plurinationality as a guiding principle.
0: Yeah, and on that note, Professor Mills, and this is really uh, what I wanted to get to, particularly for our audience in the U.S., when we're at a time of a deepening uh, political and social crisis here in uh, the belly of the beast of world imperialism, I was hoping you could say more about the role of uh, the social movements and uh, the popular forces on the ground in these countries and how they've really been sort of uh, uh, the engine of uh, bringing about this change uh, uh, within the Latin American and Caribbean region. Uh, I mean, And frankly, just putting up a a gallant uh, battle against uh, imperialism over all these years.
5: Yeah, I mean, the pushback uh, in Brazil uh, by the grassroots uh, has led to the uh, rehabilitation of the unjustly uh, persecuted uh, uh, Lula, who is now president of Brazil. Uh, The social movements in Colombia, again, tremendous pushback against the killing fields of Colombia where community leaders have been gunned down uh, by paramilitary forces. Well, that election was also significant and a victory again uh, for the popular sectors. And Venezuela, we, we still have to mention again, it was the civic military alliance. It was uh, the grassroots that uh, ensured uh, to an uprising, the return of Chavez uh, in the, the coup of 2002, but it also ensured that Maduro could weather such great storms of um, assassination attempts, uh, mercenary incursions, etc and we already mentioned bolivia where the grassroots the popular sectors, social movements uh, were really the major protagonists of course in alliance with them with the mosque the movement uh, towards socialism to recuperating uh, their democracy. so and and Mexico um, just a tremendous victory in 2018 again, the Morena was not just a political party, but a movement um, that basically was able to renovate all the branches of government uh, with the aim of, of what they call the Fourth Transformation. Uh, so I think Washington uh, underestimated the force of the popular movements in Latin America and the staying power, uh, despite the onslaught and the economic sanctions, the staying power of the left in Latin America.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Professor Mills, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, December 7th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call here at By Any Means Necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. But you can also listen to our shows at Sputniknews.com slash radio click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary you can also hear us on sputnik.mave that's m-a-v-e dot digital and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m in the washington dc area from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time each weekday and we're streaming for your viewing pleasure On Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want
0: to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, Pedro Castillo, the president of Peru, has been arrested and is reportedly being held uh, in a police station in Lima, Peru and uh, this is following a vote by uh, uh, the Peruvian Congress, which is a majority right-wing body, um, to basically take him out of office uh, in what would amount to a legislative coup and uh, this arrest comes not long after Castillo announced that he was dissolving the Parliament in order to uh, avoid uh, such a coup. And according to reports the police and the military have declared uh, their support for this move according to La República. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Esther Rivera, artist, author, independent journalist and host and producer of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Oh,
6: thanks for having me, Sean and Jackie. Always happy to to join you.
0: And we're always happy to have you on, Esther. And today, I believe, was actually the opening hearing of the uh, uh, Moore v. Uh, uh, Harper case, which uh, uh, basically goes to the issue of Election Authority. We've been following this on the show and have been pointing out to people the importance of this uh, case as uh, it basically amounts to a right wing attack on the very concept of one person, one vote. And I know you've been uh, listening in on uh, uh, the hearing today and just sort of curious, you know, what you were able to hear. Uh, Not sure uh, if anything definitive really came out of the the hearing today and just sort of what is your impression is about how this is uh, playing out up until this point?
6: Well, you're right. I did listen and I tried to stick with it because uh, we know that this case is very much related to a, it originated as a gerrymandering case in North Carolina, where the state legislature had this, you know, right-wing state legislature in North Carolina drew up this very biased gerrymandered map so that even though the state is pretty much split politically between, say, Republicans and Democrats, that they drew up a map so that Republicans would get like at least 10 of the 13 seats in Congress. And so the the Supreme Court in North Carolina threw out the case and said, no, you know, this is and this is a conservative court. It's not like they are, you know, a bunch of liberals on the North Carolina state uh, Supreme Court. And they threw it out and said that, no, you have to go back to the drawing map or, you, you know, this, this map can't stand. And so the, the state legislature came back and basically said, no, you know, we have the right, you know, under this extreme radical theory of the independent state legislature theory, we have the right to draw up this map the way we want. We, we are the ones in charge of our elections, you know. So anyway, the Supreme Court actually took up this case. And it was pretty much, it was a surprise because it's a very obscure case. It's it's potentially very dangerous. You know, who wants a bunch of uh, radical state legislatures around the country, uh, radical right anyway, um, you know, making rules that will gerrymander and strip people of their voting rights. And, you know, so anyway, I know all this background about the case. But if you did know any background about the case, you really wouldn't get much about that listening to the argument today. Uh, just like when I listened to the uh, Sackett uh, versus the EPA case earlier this year, also uh, other cases dealing, very important cases dealing with admissions uh, and other cases that the the court has taken up. When you listen to the arguments, they're talking about like minutia. They're talking about very... Uh, people would call them esoteric issues around uh, procedure and these things that, you know, perhaps lawyers may understand the connection to, to these larger political issues that we're just talking about. But if you're just listening to the argument, you won't get any of that. You won't get any of how this case is so related to the 2020 election when, you know, Trump, in an effort to steal the election in the end after he had lost, Tried to use state legislatures and get get them to send slates of fake electors to Washington to have them vote him in as opposed to the rightful winner of the election. You won't get any of that. You won't get the connection between the 2020 election, uh, the connection to voting rights around the country, the the ongoing on, going on uh, onslaught against voting rights. So I I can't say that I. Uh, Saw which way the wind is blowing based on the arguments, but I do know that the the people who were questioning this, they gave very good questions around these kinds of procedures I'm talking about, and then the 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 lead attorney or plaintiff or whoever on you know arguing for this theory, he stuck by his guns about how this is absolutely you know correct in law you know, not mentioning how it will basically upend uh, voting as we know it.
1: Yeah. And even the way that uh, this case is described, basically almost making it sound like an extension of states' rights, but it's deeper than that because really North Carolina and their Republican legislature is arguing that uh, states have exclusive, uh, exclusive authority to structure federal elections. And I I mean, when when you say it like that, that states have the authority to structure federal elections however they want, then, of course, the logical question is, well, then what happens to federal elections if states can determine uh, on a state by state basis how they carry out federal elections? Then how are elections then federal? But I, I do think this kind of obscures. Uh, In a way, this is like the the almost like the end game. I was going to say extreme, but I don't know that it's extreme, but I almost feel like this is like one of the end games of the state's rights theory that never went away, Esther, but has only kind of morphed into these different arguments that that they're almost dressed up in in these pretty, you know, uh, uh, legalese so that we don't see immediately that it's all covering up. For the same racist, bigoted states' rights arguments.
6: Absolutely, and you have this case in North Carolina. You know, earlier this year, you know, we were outside the Supreme Court when the Murat versus Milligan uh, case was being heard, and you know that is talking about Alabama, where you know Black plaintiffs basically uh, brought their case uh, before the Supreme Court uh, because they have drawn gerrymandered maps to basically disenfranchise uh, one third of the population of that state, which is black. And then they only had one, you know, majority black district out of, I think, seven. So uh, where, you know, where, where blacks could, you know, form the majority in terms of electing, uh, being able to elect uh, from that district. So, uh, yes, yeah, this is, it's the same you know fight that we thought was fought you know back in the 1950s and 1960s and it's been dressed up as you said to be refought again uh, at the supreme court because because as you said these people've never given up they've never given up and they have uh used this term of the supreme court you know to come you know with we'll take some knives out right and whether it's voting rights or reproductive rights or lgbtq rights uh you know even you know they have uh, you know seriously considered major blows against our environment you know already in terms of saying the epa cannot regulate em- emissions and um you know looking if you listen to the sackett case in terms of people getting into the weeds they were actually debating they had all these questions from the justices and the people arguing on on behalf of of weakening basically the Clean Water Act. Uh, they were talking at some points about what is a stream? Is a marshland a stream? Is uh, is you know can you consider a land this far away from the stream to be endangering the stream? It was just you know when you really listen to it, it just reminded me of what I heard today because it, it all ignored the fact that the Clean Water Act was enacted to ensure the clean water in our country, to to keep uh, industries and corporations from just using our waterways as, as a garbage pit and a toilet to dump all manner of toxic chemicals. You know, certain people of a certain age will remember when you know the the river through Cleveland caught on fire, right, and so because it was so filled with with toxic you know mess, so the same thing here, you know you have this all these arguments without dealing with the fact that do Americans have a right to vote? Do we have a right to one person, one vote mattering in this country and yeah you won't you won't get to that basic question by listening to the arguments today.
0: Mm, yeah. And, uh, and the, by any means uh, necessary chat, uh, Esther, uh, Prester John, too, says the Democrats have been a complete no show with regard to right wing gerrymandering. And, and I think that's true. And uh, not only in terms of the gerrymandering, but really the whole issue of uh, the racist voter suppression that we've been seeing uh, here lately. And I think, unfortunately, it's um, standard operating procedure for the Democrats uh, uh, at this point. To, you know, maybe make some pretense like they're addressing these issues without actually fighting for them or really employing all the resources or using all the power that they can to really uh, uh, make some kind of uh, change on these things. And I'm wondering what you sort of make of that aspect of it in terms of the role of the Democrats in this whole issue and how you see that factoring in uh, to how we see it unfolding now.
6: Well, it, it's been like watching like a, a slow motion crash, you know, a slow motion car crash, because back the, uh, you, you could say after the 2020 election, the one of the first items on the agenda should have been to shore up the voting rights of their own base. And I remember there were a lot of kind of issues coming together all at once around the voting rights issue. And one of the issues was, believe it or not, the census. And when Trump, uh, because when Trump was still in, in in office, he really rigged the census. And if you remember, I know this might seem disconnect, disconnected, but he went out of his way to scare a lot of undocumented people uh, to uh, to put certain things in place so that many people would not be counted. And This matters because districts and uh, legislative districts, electoral districts, are drawn up based on the amount of people in an area. And so if you have huge swaths of the population either not being counted, miscounted, undercounted, then that will increase or decrease the number of people counted for that district and and, and the, the, the ways that the districts can be drawn. And the, and the fact that when, um, you know, this is the, the Democrats still have, they're still in charge of the House, they still have uh, that one extra vote in the Senate, that they could not put certain things in place so that the uh, voting rights, uh, measures, um, proposals could be put in place to protect voters. Uh, before the census vote was used by these various state legislatures to draw up districts, it made a big difference. I mean, that's a long way of saying, my, making my point, it made a big difference. And then, and then after that, you had, uh, before the People Act, you had uh, uh, at least two pieces of legislation come before Congress. Neither of them could pass. They couldn't get past the Senate. They wanted to blame Cinema uh, and Mansion for this uh, vote, but uh, the fact is that you know we see here after this midterm, they did not lose control of the Senate. So this whole thing about being afraid to uh, deal with the filibuster, you know, it just showed their own lack of spine. They needed to not only deal with the filibuster to pass voting rights and to pass these other pieces of legislation that they that they needed to pass for the people. Um, and I mean, elements of Build Back Better and other elements that that uh, would improve the material conditions of working people in this country. They wouldn't do it because they were scared. And the voting rights, the the voting rights legislation. Fell by the wayside. It did not pass, and now they've lost the house and uh, the the Supreme Court. You know, one of two main areas that the Republicans control. Well, okay, the House, the Supreme Court, but I also mean these like thirty state legislatures around the country. They are using the bodies that they control to still try to push through this agenda. And that's why uh, it's so important and it's so dangerous that the Supreme Court took up this case.
0: Definitely. And, you know, even in sort of uh, uh, having a look at how it's all playing out, I mean, It's just clear that when we see on the one hand, we have these far right elements that are attacking these fundamental rights and these center right elements that, you know, like to pretend they're doing something for us, but not really doing anything. I mean, this is the sort of thing I think that only uh, uh, deepens the uh, political crisis uh, that's been raging in the U.S. Uh, for some time, and I think that it just sort of further um, deteriorates uh, people's faith in these uh, uh, institutions. And see, I think as we move towards uh, 2024, the next uh, presidential election, which I tend to think will be uh, particularly intense, we'll see even more of these contradictions sharpen and come to bear as just the just the fundamental backwardness of uh, 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 the U.S. democracy understands it becomes more and more clear. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to so By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lupeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 02521 That's 2 0-2-5-2-1-3-2-0. Myself and Jackie Lupeman continue to be joined by Esther Averum. And Esther, the uh, runoff uh, Senate race in Georgia between uh, incumbent Reverend Raphael Warnock and uh, uh, former professional football player Herschel Walker um, has been called for Warnock, which would uh, which means now that the Democrats will hold uh, a slim majority in the Senate And not too much unlike the fact that the Republicans hold a slim majority in the House. And one question that, you know, we've been discussing on the show, not just with the Georgia race, but with, uh, I think, a number of the um, uh, midterm races is that, you know, basically, how is it that these races are so close given uh, uh, who some of these uh, people are. I mean, whether we're talking about Herschel Walker or Dr. Oz or any of these other sort of sundry, you know, uh, weirdos and brigands that that have found their way into these uh, uh, races. Matter of fact, I was actually looking at a piece in Common Dreams that, you know, is literally talking about this very issue that's called Why Is It This Close? And, you know, I'm definitely curious your thoughts um, on that uh uh Esther, because I feel like there's just something nestled within that that uh, could tell us uh, a good bit about uh, the political landscape inside this country at this moment.
6: Yeah, I, I guess the standard you know observation is about is about polarization, the fact that even on a national level, the electorate seems very polarized. whether you want to call it the MAGA movement or the Trumpista movement or whatever, they form a sizable block. You know, Trump did get 70 million votes. Right. So, so when you, when you really look at Georgia, you know, it's unlike in the past, certainly for most of my lifetime, Georgia has been considered a red state, a deep red state, But you and I know, many of us know, people who have been moving to Georgia from the Northeast or other places, you know, where it might, you know, you might be able to get a nice house or something for a lot less than you can in D.C. for sure, or Philadelphia or New York. And these people have helped to turn Georgia into a purple state, to a state where there are more people who are Democratic voters and And have come out to support not only Reverend Warnock, but they supported Stacey Abrams and, uh, you know, many um, pieces of legislation to move uh, Georgia in a more progressive direction, let's just say it that way. And so I think that that is what's reflected in the fact that it's so tight. You know, it's discouraging when you see a candidate like Hershel Walker and you know i don't want to i'm not a doctor and i don't want to you know kind of pile on you know what are obviously you know things that we can see that deficiencies there in terms of kind of the way he's thinking the way he's speaking uh the way he's presenting himself out on the campaign field on um, and but when you see that and you know part of that is probably our um Some of it it has to do with as black people, like, we don't, you know, we don't really want to see ourselves represented like that. (laughs) And I have to admit that even though I kind of removed myself from kind of like this aspect of electoral politics, because you can see, you know, what the Democrats didn't do with with the majorities that they did have. But still, you know, I was like, there's no way I want to see Herschel Walker in the Senate, you know, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that he just does not seem qualified to even uh conceptualize what he was supposed to be doing there once he got in got to DC. I didn't want him as a representative of like black people in in Washington DC and, you know, to add to, you know, you know, Lloyd Austin and Lin- Linda Thomas Greenfield and the head of AFRICOM who's black now. So I don't need I didn't need another uh, kind of like disappointing, like representative of the race, <laughs> you know, uh, hovering around like DC politics. But anyway, um, I think that uh, from talking to uh, you know folks there in Georgia, the the voter suppression had a lot to do with the fact that uh, uh, the votes weren't more lopsided in favor of of Warnock. Uh, you still had. Uh, Pieces of legislation passed after the 2020 election to make it harder for uh, Georgians to vote. Uh, You had a mass campaign of challenging voters. Uh, One Republican operative challenged more than 30,000 voters. And so a lot of the people on the ground, like Black Voters Matter and other organizations, they actually had to, to wind their way through all these types of challenges and help people on an individual basis even to just be able to vote, uh, to be able to be eligible to vote. And then once eligible, can we get them to the polls? So there was like an extra hoop and then another extra hoop there placed in front of a lot of the people who were uh, working around voting rights. And um, I also finally say that the the right wing is very motivated there. they They saw that uh, their their state is now being called a purple state. And they're saying, oh, hell no, no. We're going to make sure as as long as we can to keep it red. So their motivation can't be discounted either. There are a lot of counties where uh, they are voting solid Republican. I mean, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, is, isn't she coming from, Alabama, uh, from Georgia? So we have a lot of places in this country where they're going to vote Republican almost as a matter of— um, just principle, like they're not going to vote for the Democrat and they'll see it as uh, the Democrats getting in the people who uh, perhaps, you know, sold the election from Trump or, you know, if they're in that camp. Yeah, you know,
1: and, and I think that's kind of like the, the the tension around this, this the results of the election in Georgia, because, you know, we know that the reason, one of the reasons the race was so close that it should not have been shouldn't have been this close was because of this voter suppression, this campaign of gerrymandering and voter suppression that Brian Kemp and you know, has been going on and has been continued on uh, in georgia but i i think I don't think we can discount the weakness of the Warnock Democrat platform and their actual policies in this race where I just feel like. The, the, the other reason this race was so close, Esther, was that, you know, voters really were making a decision. Look, we've got to we've got to choose between, you know, this mushedmouth,, mouth, <laughs> uh, um, you know, a hemming and and Herschel Walker here or Reverend Wa- Raphael Warnock, who re- is, is a pro-Zionist. And really doesn't do too much else other than vote for Ukraine funding. I mean, I think people really were going to the polls with really the embodiment of having to vote for the lesser of two evils. And and yeah, I, I guess it it well it definitely kept the GOP from controlling the Senate. But that I I just really feel like Georgia voters who voted for Warnock were like. That's pretty much all we're gonna get here. <laughs> you know, our
6: return on this investment, not that high. Right. Yeah. And you know, I I do know that in Georgia and in other races, they've tried to out their, you know, their few uh victories, things that they could paint as victories, things that were trotted out in the last few weeks before the, the midterm election. You know, even if they were uh, greatly reduced in effect, you know, just the fact that, you know, he, uh, you know, that they did try to offer some loan, a student loan relief. And I think we talked about that before, the fact that they, uh, that they weren't the ones who, you know, overturned, you know, Roe v. Wade, you know, that they, they really rode that issue and women really responded around the country in the midterms. And so, those were the things that they continued to try to press in this special runoff. Now, uh, there were a few other things, but I can't—you know—they were so minimal. It's, it's just hard for me to remember. But I just know that they really tried to run on the on Roe v. Wade and uh, continue to motivate the population that way. Uh, but as, on the on the same token, they have not. Uh, Pushed through their own legislation for to codify Roe in Congress. So, yeah, it's 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 like you said. People are feeling like this is the best. Of, this is the best that we're going to get, and they realize that it's not that much.
0: Definitely, and not to make too hard of uh, a pivot, Esther. But I did want to touch on this issue um, of a slain uh, journalist, uh, Shireen Abu Akleh. There's a new evidence. Um, in her killing as the Al Jazeera a network that she worked for is actually uh, suing uh, Israeli military forces at the International Criminal Court. Uh, so what's happening here?
6: Yeah, well, this is just the latest investigation, an in, independent investigation, and each one is showing just uh, basically an uh, execution of Abu Akhle, And they... Uh, they say uh, I'm looking at looking at a piece about the investigation, and they say that based on several eyewitness accounts and uh, the examination of multiple items of video footage and forensic evidence pertaining to the case. And this is they're describing their investigation, and they they say that it is very clear that Abu Akleh were quote. Directly fired at by Israeli occupation forces, end quote. And so this is uh, further, uh, you know, it, it's, it's giving further evidence of what we already know. And the other investigations have have shown the same thing by video evidence and by photographs, that they came out and directly fired on her. And not only fired on her, but fired on her coworkers. Uh, uh, wounding another co-worker and then also wounding other people or shooting at other people as they came out to try to assist her. Because she basically after being shot in the in the face, you know, in the head portion of her body, she she basically laid there and bled to death because no one was able to come and give her any kind of aid. So, you know, uh, there was a press conference that Al Jazeera held and, you know, laying out some of the, their new findings. And so this lawsuit is going to go ahead. And uh, it's, it's so interesting to hear the, the response from the apartheid state, because they can't say, <coughs> pardon me, that it didn't happen, but they are basically um, saying that, you know, you, you don't have any right to investigate us or our soldiers. And uh, just the arrogance and the belligerence of of the apartheid state is just, it's just, it's breathtaking, really.
0: Definitely. And uh, we have a caller on the line has been waiting very patiently. Mark, tell us what's on your mind.
7: Well, Good good afternoon. Uh, um, I just wanted to say great show once again today and as always, quite frankly, but uh, your guests' remarks are, resonate very well with me as well uh, with respect to uh, what you talked about. The Georgia election uh, specifically that I think kudos to to the folks who held it down with a sense of more tolerance and intolerance of the indecency. I think that from my perspective, I'm not a Georgian, I'm a New Yorker, but from a person who's independent and looks at the duopoly, I think a lot of people who are tired of the, 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 the Democrats faking left and going right. And knowing what the the Republicans stand for, we're pretty much willing to walk out at uh, some degree and just say hey, no. But then you do Herschel's like punching me in the back of my head as I said I had enough. And, you know, I'm no, I'm not going to tolerate that. So it was only we, you just can't. You've got to draw a line when you saw Herschel being promoted as this is going to be our senator. So people sense the incense, incenseness. <laughs> not, not the word uh, incense. I, I'll get it right. Anyway, the point being, they were just could not, that was a threshold just too low, you know? Uh, and, and the Democrats, with their fecklessness and their efforts to even deal with the onslaught of, of, of the Republican Party's attempt to suppress the, the right to vote, um, this has been ongoing. And she correctly outlined how much they demonstrate, how much they don't really care. They operate in the same pattern. Clinton did the same thing here in the Democratic primaries. In New York, uh, so the both parties do this, knock them off the ballot for their agenda type of thing, and 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 that's something we need to be clear about when we're talking about the right to vote for Americans. Um, I wanted to speak specifically also about the housing uh, subject you touched on with your earlier guests. and just to say that essentially since the for- the government, federal government, had abandoned funding housing. Uh, public housing for over forty years, capital funds were not being allocated and were not available. So, as the money had run out and has run out, they introduced these you know some novel programs. The Hope Six was to reduce what the Cabrini Green assumption that we couldn't have poor people living on top of poor people, and we wanted to diversify the income levels of people in these housing developments and to minimize the the environmental concerned that we were building these tight towers of of poverty. So with that, they created spatial concerns, which were environmentally attractive, create open space and so forth. But they also reduced the number of units available. They did not deal with the problem of the displacement, nor with new funding coming in. And then they simply abandoned it to the neoliberal agenda, let the market bear what it can. And that is where America's crisis is, and they have no intentions on addressing it. And here comes 2008. You blame it on the poor. The rich run away, get bailed out, and they come back and say, look what we're doing. We're buying all the single housing as well. We control it. The rent-tier class is running amok in America. But the, but the time is coming reconciliation or reconcilement <laughs> for, de- for the devastation of America's empire and the Western empire, their reckoning is coming, and I think it's coming very soon. I just wish that we will not be so, and, and I, thanks to your program and, and the, guys, the kind of work you guys are doing there on a, uh, I forget the name of your program, uh, but not just your program and others, uh, you're, you're bringing an educational forum for people who want to know who can see beyond the blinders of the spin and the propaganda of both the duopoly and the elite empire. Because if we don't come to reckoning with this as Americans, there is going to be a far-right move, stronger than what we've seen so far, because Europe's already in that basket case, and they'll, they'll eat each other alive. But we will have it upon ourselves as well. So I think that the education you're doing is powerful. That's all I have to say. Thank you for all you do.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. Really appreciate your support. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, We have another caller on the line here. Greg, tell us what's on your mind.
7: Uh, Hello, Sean. Hello, Jackie. Jackie, this is Greg Ford, by the way. And uh, I wanted to, my question is for both of you guys and
5: also for Esther. Um, My sister actually had called me earlier today. I thought it was a very uh, timely question she asked me. She said,
7: why is it that I think or she wants to know what my thoughts are in terms of the fact that Stacey Abrams has been such a powerful influence in assisting uh, the Democratic Party uh, in getting some of the wins that they've gotten. By, you know, Reverend Warnock, Ossoff, etc., and why she has not been able to get over the hump herself.
0: Right. I uh, Appreciate the question, Greg. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Jackie Lukman, your thoughts?
1: You know what? That that's something that I really thought about as I was watching the results roll in last night, and I thought, you know, the turnout from what I understood for the uh, uh, gubernatorial elections was just as high. I think for these Senate for Senate runoffs, probably higher. So I'm I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I think I think there is something to the way that. Abrams kind of immediately went to these tropes of blaming black folks for her loss before the election even happened. I mean, I think there is an aspect of that 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 is is kind of the Democratic Party uh, um, go to. That's that's their standard operating procedure that, you know, you blame black voters, particularly black male voters for any lack of success that that black candidates have in, in elections, but beyond that, and I, and I don't think that directly correlated to the reason why she lost. Lost because, as we talked about on the show, Sean uh, and Esther, it was not the case that black men did not actually vote. You know, d- didn't vote for Stacey Abrams on uh, mass. That just was not true. Um, they they did vote for her. So I. I think I, I am really that is one of those questions, not a whole lot of questions that I'm at a loss to answer. But that is one of those questions that I don't think I have an answer to that that makes sense in my mind. And and I'm wondering how you're approaching that, Esther, because because I got nothing. It makes no sense to me.
6: One analysis that I read when they they really broke down the electorate in Georgia in that particular race for governor, they were making the point. One of the points they made was what you just said, that they were debunking this whole idea that Black men didn't vote for Stacey Abrams. But they also talked about, you know, who who didn't vote for her. And they said uh, Latino voters and uh, white women. And they said that when they looked at those groups, that she was not let down by Black people, but she was let down by— other parts of what what were assumed to be parts of the Democratic coalition. So there were Latino voters, and particularly mentioning um, white voters. And I don't know if if that was particularly women, but <clears throat> excuse me. But um, but but that's what this particular analysis says in terms of the election.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lucman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open to That's two. 025211320. I am here. Jackie Lucman is here. Esther Averum is here. And uh, Esther, the Pentagon recently failed its fifth consecutive annual audit, but at the same time is expected to pass an eight hundred and forty seven billion dollar military budget for the coming fiscal year. This despite the fact that there's something like 40 million people across the U.S. uh, living in poverty. And I mean, I think this just highlights one of. The fundamental and glaring hypocrisies of uh, U.S. and capitalism and the uh, imperialist system that springs out of uh, uh, capitalism in the sense that, you know, the the very institution uh, uh, tasked with maintaining and keeping track of all these sorts of things continues to fail its own audits, but is somehow still allowed to pass these gross uh, uh, military budgets that far outpace that of uh, other governments around the world. And so how are you sort of seeing uh, uh, this whole issue of the Pentagon and uh, failing yet another audit? And like, how do you sort of situate that into sort of uh, the broader issue of the rot that has so set in uh, U.S. society?
6: It's it's really, I I, I have no words. This is beyond outrageous. I, I keep thinking because, you know, it's the end of the year, you're kind of thinking about like, you know, looking at the year in total. And I can't help but think that for most Americans, this has been the year when they showed up. They really showed up. And if we we don't get the message by now that this government is not run for our benefit, that it's run for the enrichment of these corporations, especially these defense contractors, then... I don't know if we'll ever get it because when you look at these crises that we're having, um, you know, just looking, just because it's in the news, it should still be in the news. Jackson, Mississippi, you know, not having clean water. And, and then also the Flint not still having clean water, but then as you mentioned, just the bulk of the population living in, you know, in poverty, you know, and, and not, being able to cover any type of an emergency if you have if they have it in their household, so our education, our crumbling infrastructure, all these things, and so I place this latest failure of the audit in this overall structure that you know um, we uh, ha- we obviously have to have a new system to repair, you know, this aching. And this rot that you referred to, because when even when we send politicians back to Washington, like Reverend Warnock, they may have good intentions. And I don't think that, you know, he's an evil person. (laughs) He's disappointing. You know, uh, the squad is disappointing. Even when we put these people in office who we believe have the people's agenda at heart, we see that they cannot enforce. They cannot put through policies that help people. But at the same time, tens of billions, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars going into this sinkhole at the Pentagon. And, you know, I was out with the people doing the um, they were serving subpoenas on the weapons contractors in this area. It was an effort to, you know, kind of just dramatize the fact that you know that they believe these corporations are war criminals that they they are committing war crimes because they're basically supplying these weapons of death and selling them all around the world that are responsible for such mass suffering and and war crimes around the globe and you know it was a way of it was a day to remember how much wealth we're talking about not only at these massive corporations like You know, Boeing or, you know, Lockheed Martin, these different places, but also in the the surrounding suburbs, which are some of the wealthiest suburbs or counties in the whole country. And that's because of all this weapons manufacturing money, all this money sloshing around, which the Pentagon can't find. (laughs) So uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just more motivation. To you know, stay on the journey, to stay on the fight, because uh, you know these people getting this money, they're not going to give it up easy, and they're going to they're going to keep fighting to have these ill-gotten gains, and it's up to us as the people to to uh, have a government and have a system that will feed our needs, you know, that will deal with education and healthcare and our roads and our you know just. You know, basically how we work and what we produce, that we will produce something other than weapons of war will produce things that people need to live, to live their lives.
0: Absolutely. And and real quick, uh, there was a statement that was put out uh, about this uh, after an analysis uh, from the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies here in D.C. that said, quote, the Pentagon once again failed to pass a basic audit showing that it knows where its money goes. And instead of holding out for any kind of accountability, Congress stands ready to give a big raise to an agency that failed to account for more than 60 percent of its assets. I'd have a hard time, you know, thinking of uh, another agency that would be, you know, allowed to uh, continue to get that amount of money and resources after failing to that extent. But uh, Jackie Lukman, want to bring you in.
1: But, you know, I, I don't see the kind of uh, reining in that you talked about, the kind of challenge to this kind of of, of spending, uh, throwing good money after bad and and horrible and and deadly that is being done with uh, giving the Pentagon all this money, fifty five percent of which this money that goes to the Pentagon. Uh, by the way, goes to private sector military contractors because people always think, you know, we have to keep increasing the uh, uh, spending for uh, defense because we have to give the troops a pay raise. And and they, people oddly think that all that money goes to like the troops. No, it doesn't. It goes to private sector military contractors um, that they're accountable to no one. I, I don't care what the federal uh, uh, contracting rules say, accountable to not a soul. But, I mean, I don't see in this country the kind of accountability that we need to change course on this kind of thing, uh, Esther. When Volodymyr Zelensky, that hero of the embattled country of Ukraine, was just voted Time's Person of the Year, Time magazine, Person of the Year, Volodymyr Zelensky is on the cover uh, and it has it was said of him that, quote, uh, Zelensky really galvanized the world in a way we haven't seen in decades. And this is uh, Edward Felsenthal, Times editor in chief, who said this uh, of uh, Zelensky. He said the spirit of Ukraine is embodied by countless individuals inside and outside the country. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Felsenthal. actually, I guess, was also named person of the year. That's confusing. I I don't see anyone in this country seriously challenging defense spending that is taking us down a path of destruction, certainly closer to nuclear conflagration, when people in this country cannot recognize that this government is under... Uh, uh, writing a fascist government in Ukraine and in doing so is also acting as a fascist actor.
0: Yeah. And I was just thinking, you know, as that uh, as Jackie was quoting that piece, saying that uh, how, you know, Zelensky supposedly galvanized the world. I mean, I actually just don't think that's true. I mean, I think in reality, it almost feel like a broken record saying this because I feel like I put out so much on the show. I mean, the fact is, I mean, Zelensky as an individual, like his image has just been I mean, forced down the throat of like uh, the people of the U.S. and the West as part and parcel of this, you know, pro imperialist narrative shift uh, uh, shaping around the war in Ukraine. I mean, the likes of which we uh, just haven't seen. I mean, We've seen uh, uh, Volodymyr uh, uh, Zelensky give speeches at uh, major award shows. I mean, actor Sean Penn gave him his Oscar. Him and his wife were, you know, in a in a, a centerfold in Vogue. I mean, you know, j- just the level of a celebritization that that we haven't seen uh, in some time. And so, as such, I'm actually not that surprised that Zelensky is a, a Person of the Year. I'm not sure what other accolade or, or plaudit he could really uh, get at this point. But even as it stands, I'm wondering what you think about it
6: no but you're so right i mean he's been the key actor in this kind of information war the psyop whatever you want to call it that has been you know thrust down our throats for all of this year and uh the fact that uh he could just i think less than two weeks ago uh basically tell a lie that could have led to world war three Uh, basically trying to lure NATO into, uh, you know, a direct confrontation with Russia. And he knew that this was not a Russian missile that hit Poland, but he lied anyway. And the fact that you have a person tell this kind of immense lie and dangerous tale, spin this dangerous tale and then double down on it, you know, that just shows you who is being given this type of, accolades right i uh, just look really quick last year it was elon musk right <laughs> so he was the person of the year last year uh, before that it was kamala harris and joe biden so let we see who where this is going uh these this kind of recognition might be more of a um you know something to not not maybe it's not something to brag about
0: yeah. And, you know, the funny thing about it, I mean, even talking about the uh, uh the whole Poland situation, about those uh, rockets that hit that village in Poland that I believed uh, uh, killed two people and just how Zelensky just immediately uh, uh, started blaming Russia, something that literally could have uh, put us in a World War Three situation and then sort of doubling down and refusing to even really sort of walk back, even while uh, members of Zelensky's own administration was uh, cautioning, you know, a uh, uh, restraint in, in talking about this. Um, I mean, one of Zelensky's advisors, uh, Andre Yurmark, it was uh, reported uh, just last month uh, that uh, he said, quote, it's a little bit not right to say that it's a Ukrainian rocket or a uh, Russian rocket. And talking about the uh, importance of, you know, basically waiting till uh, the end of the investigation. And so we're seeing different narratives and hearing different narratives from Zelensky himself, elements of his own administration. We know that uh, uh, Joe Biden himself uh, did not join Zelensky in sort of immediately uh, uh, blaming Russia. So we saw that kind of tension there between Zelensky's and his sponsors in Washington. And so we had this incredibly dangerous moment here that I should point out was uh, uh, exacerbated by just straight up bad journalism from uh, uh, platforms like Uh, I believe it was the Associated Press uh, that that published that piece that I'm uh, uh, referring to. And of course, there's uh, no accountability for this one way or the other but even though we're talking about someone who is literally trying to push us to the brink of nuclear war he is given the title of person of the year and so i just think that says a lot about the uh uh perception what i would argue is is, is a manufactured and frankly fake uh perception of volodymyr zelensky um uh, uh that's been perpetrated against the people of the us and the west that uh, again i think uh, It was kind of necessary from the standpoint of U.S. imperialism in continuing to justify the U.S.'s role in uh, uh, funneling all these money, all this money, weapons and resources into this blood soaked war. And, you know, as ever, I want to reiterate, you know, what I've been saying about this and the fact that. You know, um, uh, the peace movement, the anti-war movement, the uh, anti-imperialist movement. We're in a moment where we're going to have to be out front and, and to not be scared about uh, demanding peace and doing so right here in the belly of the beast in the United States. This is our task and we should be serious about carrying it out, understanding uh, uh, the stakes. Because the stakes are life on this planet as we know it. And I just hope that we are all very uh, uh, clear about that. And so in reality, when we take a look at the issues of war, the, the, the conditions of uh, poor working and oppressed people, both in the U.S. and around the world, I feel like we're seeing uh, uh, not only a time of that can be really scary and frankly, quite frightening in a lot of ways, but I want to encourage people to also look at it as a time of great opportunity and a time where we can really be uh, building and organizing and studying and developing ourselves and our communities and our organization to stand up to the task of building this new society that we all know is necessary. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Esther Rivera so much for joining us today. We're back tomorrow with than all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.